Susio? So this is a 46-year-old housewife, three children. The oldest was around 12 at the time. She's about two and a half years out. She had mild anemia, had uh, colonoscopy, had uh, approximately three centimeter ulcerated lesion in the transverse colon. It was moderate to poorly differentiated on the initial biopsy. She had a left hemicolectomy, and they found a 2.5 centimeter poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma with evidence of lymphovascular invasion, invasion into the muscularis, into the pericolonic fat. She had 18 negative lymph nodes. So it was a 2A, T3, N0, M0. She'd been operated upon at a medical center in New York City and had apparently seen an oncologist post-op, and there'd been discussions about adjuvant therapy. She came to see me. Can you talk a little bit more about her and her lifestyle and her attitude? Sure. This is a very well-informed lady. She was very active with her family and wanted to do whatever she could to make sure that she stayed around as long as she could, free of disease and on this planet. Axel? I mean, you said it was poorly differentiated, yes. lymphovascular invasion. I mean, this is one of those criteria which I classify as clinically high risk. And with all the molecular markers that we're like to get in the future to really make a decision on who is the high-risk stage 2 patients and gene array studies that are being done right now, I think we should not underestimate the power of the information we already have at hand. I mean, we had talked earlier about perforation, obstruction, T4 disease, et cetera, et cetera. And these clinical risk factors might carry different weights in terms of their individual effect on prognosis. But you have two factors that I think are important here. It's poorly differentiated histology and lymphovascular invasion. So these two factors would put the patient into this high-risk stage 2 category that was kind of teased out of the mosaic data by Amory de Gramont's presentation. And although this is not a pre-planned subgroup analysis, I was impressed by the hazard ratio in terms of disease-free survival benefit. 0.74 was on par with stage 3 disease. And putting everything together with the knowledge about the poor performance of those patients and poor prognosis of those patients with these clinical adverse factors and the effect that we see in the mosaic trial when we use Falfox in this subgroup, I would think that this patient is a candidate for Falfox, in particular since her own wish apparently was to do as much as possible. Right. So I think outside of a clinical trial, this would be my preference. So would I, you bring up the issue of fluoroperinine monotherapy or capecitamine, for example? I would show her the data the high-risk data, because we have comparative data, LV5FU2 versus Falfox, and I would assume, and probably even, and this is a critical issue, probably direct the discussion a little bit more toward take it as a 46-year-old patient rather than not take it. And this is one of the powers that we have as oncologists. We're never completely unbiased. We're never, whatever, how you present, what you present, even if you show curves, how you direct patients' attention to different curves, we shouldn't underestimate that we are influencing the patient's decision with the way we present it. But patients, as you doctor, I know that you can't give me a perfect answer. Just do the best you can. What do you think the chances are going to have a relapse if I don't do anything? Full Fox, Cape Cytomy. So baseline risk for a relapse in this situation would probably be around 30%. Okay, so, so what would you 30, guess? 35% actually with high-risk stage. 35, 35%. Yeah. How much absolute you think you'd drop off there just with I would, Cape I would or ballpark it in to make it easy for patients because you can't get into the kind of decimal points. So I'd say, okay, with five of you, you'd get 8 to 10% benefit and an additional 5% with oxaplatin. And I wouldn't make a real distinction between Cape Sidebin versus five of you because I don't think there, we have enough data on really showing that there is... One's better than the other. Okay, let's hear what happened with the discussion. So 
we had. I would a, actually like to see. Well, oh, Jordan, Jordan, would you, what, what numbers do you have? What would you throw out there, Jordan? Well, I, 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 I don't know about the numbers, but don't it's, think it's I ever know numbers. numbers I actually can throw you off. Well, actually, again, yeah. you know, I think there has been a culture of numbers mm -hmm. that's been yep. developed mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. You all are used to, I mean, we were talking about this yesterday. We know that more than half of oncologists are going to adjuvant online, mm -hmm. pulling the numbers. Yeah. She'd be one of those people you're a little bit hesitant about for E5202 because of the lymphovascular invasion. I think of all the pathologic criteria that scare me outside of obstruction perforation, the true pathologic criteria, lymphovascular invasion scares me more than anything else in terms of recurrence. And so off study, I would tend to favor Folfox. And if you believe the data from the 0.74 hazard ratio, I think Axel's numbers are probably right on in reality, because you probably have about 30% risk of recurrence. You reduce it by a third in theory, if you go back to the old or tell data, that's going back a long time, to about 20%, and then 74% has a ratio of 0.74, is another 5% risk mm. further down. So you're fudging a lot. One, you're fudging from three decades ago. Uh, and then the fact is that the hazard ratio had very wide deviation bars. So I would tend to favor treatment. I would tend to favor full Fox. It would be, once again, another lengthy discussion. Can, so I, can I give one comment on these online calculators? Because, I mean, Mayo Clinic has one, Adjuvant Online has one. And when I look at the Mayo Clinic calculator recently, you know, we had in two or three years ago, we integrated overall survival benefit for Folfox therapy based on the idea that what we see three-year disease-free survival translate into five-year overall survival. We just recently realized this year that, okay, it doesn't cut it at five years. If we see three, Folfox positive and at six years. So... There's a lot of extrapolation in these online calculators because, of course, you want the answer now and not like when the data are really mature to help you with your decision. So I'm very hesitant to go into this single-digit game, you know, on these adjuvant online or whatever Mayo Clinic calculators. I think what patients need to understand is the overall magnitude of benefit. And I think this is more important than going down to, is it 1.5 or 2% or whatever? It's very, very problematic. Actually, I've been having discussions slash arguments with Peter Rabden for a couple of years now because he doesn't want, he tries to discourage patients coming to the site to do a site that'll explain this to patients because I think it's all well and good to say 12.9, 9.8, but I think as you're pointing out, those are kind of guesstimates and yep. maybe it could be a lot different. What happened with this woman? So, what was the discussion like so and what she ended up doing? So this discussion took place after the mosaic trial data had been reported before the exact trial had been reported and we had this big discussion I showed actually the curves from mm -hmm. the mosaic trial explained to her that there was a lot of debate with regards to stage two and my personal bias was to give her full fox being it was a suburb of New York City she actually sought a third opinion and a major medical center in the Upper East Side of Manhattan and they felt that full fox, full <laughs> fox would be perhaps pushing it and uh, recommended that she take Lucavorn 5-FU in the traditional weekly schedule. And so she came back, and we started the Lucavorn 5-FU, and she said something very interesting to me. I went over the regimen, explained to her calcium Lucavorn, and she said, I have a calcium allergy. And I said, <laughs> I don't know what a calcium allergy is. I've never heard of it. She said, no, I do, and my sister is a physician, and she's told, confirmed that I have a calcium allergy. How I did said, she find that out, incidentally? Apparently, in the past, she'd taken some calcium, and it wasn't milk products. It was whenever she took some calcium supplements or something. I don't, and and she what used, would happen? She would get sick. She would get nauseous. She would get diarrhea. And, you know, it had been labeled a calcium allergy. 
my way of thinking, I said, you know, I don't know what to make of this. I'm just going to go ahead and give you the treatment. So she got the treatment and she came back the next week and she said, I was very sick. I said, that's weird because most patients tolerate this very well. That We normally don't even give them antimatics. And, you know, let's see, were you anxious? No, she's actually a very put together lady. And, you know, she not was GI, vomiting, nausea. Right. And pain, abdominal cramps. So I said, let's try again this time. I'll give you an antimatic. Same thing happened. So it happened for three consecutive weeks, at which point I said, this is a real issue. I have to agree with your sister and with you that there is a problem. So this was around the time I went to ASCO and the exact data was presented. And I came back and I told her, well, we have an alternative. I could give you capecitabine. And so she got capecitabine. And she's actually doing fine. And she's in remission as recently as a few weeks ago. So, so what dose story. did you use, incidentally? So I started out, I didn't want to scare her off in my personal experience with capecitabine, not being able to use the FDA-approved dose. So I started out at a lower dose of 2,000 per meter square, and she actually handled it fine, and I was able to go up to the full dose. So oh, you increased yeah. it? Yep, and no hand-foot syndrome, and she did fine. So she took the whole course, yep. full dose, no hand-foot syndrome. No problems. And she's good now. What about calcium allergies? <laughs> it's Jordan? actually counterintuitive in a way. <laughs> well, I have no idea how you can be allergic to calcium unless it's something else in the calcium, like the thing that it's bound to. But one point on this case is she's 46 years old. And so all else would suggest that there's a risk, regardless of family history, that there may be some syndrome going on for somebody who's so young to have the disease and always worthwhile to at least offer them the option of seeing somebody with a genetics experience to go over that issue. And actually we did talk about that and also there is no family history of any colon cancer, polyps or anything. So just based on age and no other you know, family history, et cetera, what's sort of the age at which you start thinking about referring to a genetic counselor? Under 50. Mm-hmm. I know Under I'm, probably 50. Being, I'm probably being conservative in doing that, but, you know, this has become a big issue, is referring patients for genetics counseling. And we don't know the answer. Uh, the only reason I do that is because of the GI symposium a couple of years ago. The geneticist who gave a talk on family risk actually suggested that age cutoff. And that was, admittedly, without a lot of strong data. There isn't a lot of strong data when you have no family history. I remember working in Cincinnati when I was a resident in the bone marrow transplant program and how the discussion, we had an ethics discussion about the frequency with which the HLA typing did not reveal (laughs) who the father was. Certainly not the one who was in there getting his HLA typing done. (laughs) And so it was an interesting thing, not to say that this is a family where they're lying about the patient's history, but you know, you have to be cautious when they're young. And I think it's worthwhile to at least consider talking to them and learning about whether or not there's a risk. Now, she had a left-sided colon cancer, which is less common for the HMPCC patients than the right-sided. Probably is just a sporadic colon cancer, but... Let me ask you something. Based on the update to Mosaic, I didn't attend the session, but I went to the virtual meeting site, and was LVI listed as a high-risk? I don't seem to remember that. Yes, it is. It was? It is. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to complete the trio of stage two cases. And if you can just present your patient 